0: Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome as our guest for this podcast, Dr. Yudong Wang. Dr. Wang is an Associate Professor of Bioengineering at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Wang's interests fit into the broad category of tissue engineering, and more specifically, bio-inspired materials for cardiovascular tissue engineering and nerve regeneration. Dr. Wang, welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today.
1: Thank you. It's my pleasure.
0: My introductory comments suggest that you're a tissue engineer expert. Can you expand a little bit on your interest in the direction of your lab studies?
1: Yes, sure. So my lab is focused on biomaterials and specifically how we design biomaterials for tissue engineering, the cardiovascular system, as well as for nerve regeneration, like you said. And we also have an interest in developing biomaterials for drug delivery. More specifically, we're interested in peptides or proteins like uh, growth factors or interleukins and other cytokines. So as far as our cardiovascular system goes, There are many important players for tissue engineering in the cardiovascular system. For example, you could focus on cells, you could focus on materials, you could focus on bioreactors, and our focus is biomaterials. And specifically, we are interested in developing elastomeric biomaterials and how you use them to do tissue engineering in the cardiovascular space. We use it both for small arteries and for capillary beds, and also are collaborating with other experts in the cardiac tissue to work on tissue engineering cardiac patches.
0: So if I can perhaps ask you to clarify, where will this ultimately lead in from your visionary perspective? You're trying to develop small arteries and capillaries. What's the application?
1: But the reason we interest in small arteries is because synthetic graph, as you know, works really well for diameters larger than 6 millimeter. They're not satisfactory for arteries that's less than 6 millimeters. So that's why I focus on 6 millimeter and less. So as far as application goes, we can use for many different things, both for the myocardial infarct, to so basically use it to replace coronary artery, or for perivascular diseases where the arteries have atherosclerogenic problems and we can replace the peripheral arteries as well. Also, we could use it as arterial venous shunt as the access device for hemodialysis because those patients usually take three dialysis per week. And so the vessel, typically the gold standard is to use a venous graft and that does not take the abuse very well, so to say. So they thicken and become thrombogenic. And we will use a tissue neural artery to replace the venous shunt.
0: Take me back a step, if you would, please. So uh, we've had discussions with other tissue engineering scientists, and they start with some type of a scaffold. Some cases, it's a biologically derived scaffold. In other cases, it's a synthesized scaffold. So in your case, where do you start?
1: My background is in chemistry. I like to make new materials. So in this case, we use synthetic materials for scaffolding material. We can add the biological functionality to some materials. That's one advantage of our materials. For example, PLA, that's a material that most people are familiar with, and it starts as a suture material, and then it became used widely for tissue engineering and drug delivery. So what we could do is, if we want to, we can put peptides and other functional molecules onto our elastomer, and that would control the biomaterials interface with the cells and tissues. But the student synthetic material category.
0: So you start with the synthetic material, you enhance it or enrich it with peptides and other growth factors, then it would be implanted in the body and the body would attract cells, is that the
1: strategy? That's one strategy we can use, that is use the materials alone. The typical strategy is still to seed the cells outside the body, let the tissue mature in the bioreactor, and then implant this construct, which is really a mixture of biological tissue cells and synthetic material but what would be more attractive actually would be like you alluded to which is using material alone and use the body as a bioreactor and use the body to seed its own cells you can envision that will allow the what are called the off the shelf availability so the surgeon can use this sterilized graft anytime they want they don't need to isolate cells from a the patient that also saves your surgery procedure so that would be really really attractive but right now Most technology out there does not allow you to do that yet. We're working on it, though.
0: It sounds very exciting, and I know you have a number of very well-respected publications in terms of your work. What's the expectation in terms of when this might be available for a clinical trial? Is it five years, or what time frame?
1: The best estimate I have would be about five years. Mm -hmm. That's assuming everything moves forward smoothly. And assuming the paperwork on an FDA clinical trials is not too convoluted to, to figure out how to navigate, I think five years is a reasonable target.
0: The outcomes that this approach offers is certainly worth the effort and the wait. Very pleased to hear the progress that you've made. Thank you. So you also mentioned your neuronal repair strategies and research. Can you elaborate on that just a bit, please?
1: Yes, sure. So for the neuronal work, my focus has been, again, using bioactive materials. So one thing I have done is to test whether we can use neurotransmitters as bioactive molecules. So typically, people focus on extracellular matrix moieties. For example, use lamina epitopes, like pentapeptides, like I K V V has been used a lot. And also uh, growth factors are being used as an active cue to guide the neuronal cells. Looking at the neural system, basically say, well, it's essentially a system that conducts signals. And for most of synapse, which is a gap between two neurons that allows the signal to be passed from one neuron to the next one, are chemical synapses, And they communicate why this chemical got a neurotransmitter. So we think maybe we can use a neurotransmitter as a functional molecule. And when we added the neurotransmitter, Covalently to the biomaterial, and indeed we find a dose-dependent response. That is, if you have a certain amount of neurotransmitter moieties in the polymer, the cell responded more favorably than if too high or too low amount of neurotransmitter.
0: Again, I guess I'm looking at how this might be applied. Is the principal application for things like long gap nerve repair, or is this intended for other applications?
1: You're exactly right. The primary target right now is for regenerating the nerve over long gap. We also have a technology where we can electrospin fibers, and different from a typical approach would be essentially an rod, but in this rod, we have uh, microchannels. If you look at cross-section, it mimics peripheral nerve. It essentially has many, many microchannels within a conduit, but the conduit itself is made of electrospone fibrous mesh, so it allows mass transfer and allows cell adhesion because of the nanofibrous are diameter. So
0: what is the definition of a long gap in terms of nerve damage? It's in millimeters, I presume, or is it longer than that?
1: For peripheral nerve, it's longer than 3 centimeters. Then okay. you cannot really regenerate yourself, so you need a guide to do that. And right now we're using, again, like many other things, we're using autograft, which is you sacrifice one nerve as a graft for the nerve that's, so to say, more important.
0: In terms of nerve repair, whether it's autographed or whether it's your tissue engineering approach, how long does it take to regenerate damaged or destroyed nerve?
1: The best case scenario, I is about a millimeter a day. So if you're talking about three centimeters, it takes about a month or longer. Um, to regenerate. That's the natural growth rate. of, it. And best estimate I have would be for any synthetic graft like we have. We haven't tested in human, obviously, probably two months.
0: But the advantage of your approach is you don't have to sacrifice the neuronal system in another part of the body to reestablish this lost nerve.
1: That's right. We do not need to rob Peter to pay Paul. Exactly. We pay w- Paul directly. W- well
0: said. So, Dr. Wang, I also understand that you've done some pioneering work in terms of growth factor delivery. Could you perhaps share a bit of that with us, please?
1: Sure. That's one of the really exciting developments we have recently in the lab. So we've been working on growth factor delivery probably about four years. So this is the newest project we have in the lab. And what we do, again, is a little bit different from the primary driving force in the growth factor delivery. So when you talk about growth factor delivery, what well, first come to mind, probably microspheres. The second might be hydrogel, or maybe you know those are the two dominant platform people use to deliver growth factor. So when we look at the problem of growth factor delivery, like you probably know, growth factor, if you deliver directly alone, without any protecting group, they basically get digested very quickly in the body. Uh, half-life, typically in seconds to minutes. So we really need to protect growth factor. Otherwise, delivery will not be effective. So We started by examining how is the growth factor stabilized in the body. And then typically what you see is they are anchored into the extracellular matrix. And again, typically that anchorage is provided by an anion called heparin, or heparin sulfate to be more precise. So those are highly anionic polymers. They usually use a sulfate group that provides the negative charge. So what we decided to do is to mimic that interaction. We created a polycation that will bind the heparin, and the heparin will bind any growth factor that it binds to. There are about at least 30 growth factors that binds heparin. So with this, we really have a platform that allows us to bind any heparin-binding growth factors. And that stabilize them, also we can deliver them in controlled fashion because when you mix these three water-soluble molecules, the polycation, the heparin, and the growth factor, they form a coacervate. So your solution at that point looks like a milk it's Because it forms very, very small particles, you can actually inject this through a very, very thin needle. This is about the human hair. So the injection is very non-invasive.
0: So the strategy is to keep the growth factors around for a period of time as opposed to this very short half-life you experience under... Normal conditions is that correct
1: that's correct it 's number one to keep them for a long time, so more for extended delivery, but for most cases, you need a growth factor to be around for a long period of time to be effective for against certain diseases or conditions that the other is to control how much is coming out of it, how much you deliver to the system so we can do both with this technology, and we have already shown in, the in vivo data. That this is highly effective both in subcutaneous angiogenesis. That's a way to generate blood vessel from existing blood vessel. Also in rescuing myocardial infarct. That is rescue the cardiomyocyte. We observed functional cardiomyocyte. Even so, this is preliminary data. But I'm so excited I want to share with you. So we look at even the infarct zone itself, where typically you see fibrosis and dead cells, we still see some cardiomyocytes that still exist in Z-bands. That means the cardiomyocytes not only are alive, but they maintain the gap junction that they have. So most likely it's still functional. From histology, we know it's still functional.
0: So again, the strategy is to control the release rate, but the targeting of where these growth factors go is by the site of the injection, I assume.
1: That's right. So we could inject this through a catheter so it doesn't have to be done, like for example, for myocardial infarct, it doesn't have to be open chest surgery because this can be delivered via a catheter. So it's again, less invasive than the implantation.
0: Perhaps a naive question, but what keeps the injected particles from staying where you put them?
1: They're not really particles. This is like liquid oil droplets. And what we experience is they like to adhere to things. We do not add in stabilizer, like surfactant to it. Unlike milk we see, which has surfactant, and it's a stable emulsion, this emulsion is not stable. So they like to adhere to surfaces. We sort of think this as an analog of paint. You could use this to modify the surface of a foam or the fume, or you could use as is. You basically use this as a growth factor paint. We have already done it to embed it in the gel, for example, also uh, coated the surface of uh, tissue engineering scaffold. Those are all very easy to do. If you put a piece of scaffold in this coacervate, within about one minute, you can see this milky solution disappears to become clear again. And then if you look under the microscope, what you observe is those coacervate actually aggregated on the surface of the scaffold. The scaffold active as a sponge and it sucks the growth factor delivery vehicle onto the surface.
0: So, Dr. Wang, as I understand what you just said, these injected materials have some unique properties that let them adhere to the tissue where they are injected.
1: That's right. If you look at the injection site versus the contralateral side, so the, the side that's not injected, for angiogenesis, we see much more blood vessel. So our speculation at this point, we haven't done the experiment to prove it, is because the coacitoria has rather large surface area and you still have residual charges, they stick to the local tissue and they do not move around.
0: Fascinating. It certainly shows a lot of future promise for solving some very widespread problems. Congratulations on your work. Thank you. So, Dr. Wang, I appreciate you taking the time to share with us today your pioneering studies. For those who are interested in more details about Dr. Wang's work, we'll post on the podcast website a link to his webpage. As we conclude this interview, I'd like to remind our listeners that we welcome suggestions in terms of future podcasts. You can reach us at mail at regeneratomedicinetoday.com. And I also remind our listeners that while we welcome suggestions, we cannot address specific medical issues via the podcast series or the internet. I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine for sponsoring this podcast. And until we meet again in two weeks, best wishes to all our listeners. Thank you.